Welcome to Tell Me Your Truest Story. I'm Karen Miriam Goldberg. This monthly podcast focuses on exploring, unearthing, and at times revising the stories we tell ourselves and are told to find greater freedom, justice, wisdom, and homecoming. Explore with us ways to better align our narratives with our callings and the callings of our time and the living earth. Welcome to Episode 2. If you don't tell your story, someone else will. Both of my guests today, Joseph Bruchek and Lynn Ford, talked about the importance of telling and learning and listening to your own stories. If you don't tell your own stories, someone else will tell it for you, Joe said, and Lynn echoed that same truth. Whose stories get told? Who gets to tell the stories in their own language and experience? What stories get conveyed, each tale a little boxcar of cultural DNA sending us further down the tracks? And what and whose stories are shelved or silenced, ignored or scorned? Both Joe and Lynn have lived on the cusp and in the heart of these questions their whole lives each of them changing conventions and status quos, building a bigger table for more people to come speak their truths at, and modeling the kind of listening and witnessing that changes the world. Joseph Bruchek is a longtime and widely beloved storyteller who lives in the same house where his maternal grandparents raised him in Greenfield Center, New York. He's a proud Nolhagen Abenaki citizen and respected elder among his people, the author of more than 170 books for children and adults, all helping us see another glimmer of how to be human in this world. And with his wife, Nicola, he does wildlife rehabilitation with everything from porcupines to bobcats. Joe is a gardener of story and place in this world, a grower of blueberries, a grateful father of two grown sons and a stepson, and the founder and tender of the Greenfield Review Literary Center and Greenfield Review Press. His books have garnered many awards, including the American Book Award, and some, like his Keepers of the Earth, Native American Stories and Environmental Activities for Children series, have revolutionized how to integrate science and folklore. He has taught and told all over the world. A poet and writer with a Ph.D. in comparative literature, He's continually explored his Abenaki ancestry and Native American storytelling traditions. I most recently saw Joe at the Power of Words conference in Maine in 2015, where, alongside the cold and vibrant ocean, he told stories and listened carefully to all the stories being told by humans and the very real earth. Above all, what I can say about him is that he's kind he's wise, and he's a mensch. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I've, in addition to wanting to interview you for this podcast, I for years was interested in just having a talk with you about the nature of story. And as you know, this podcast is called Tell Me Your Truest Story. My premise being that the more we know about what's true, what's real, you know, even and especially beyond human constructs, the more we can figure out how to live and also find the agency to revise the stories we're living. So how does this speak to your experience as an Abenaki citizen and also a person who bridges worlds? Well, first of all, it's all real. And people don't realize how real everything is around us. They have a very human-centered universe, and they only see the truth that uh, relates to being a human being in a world that has us as only one very small part. But as far as truth goes, people often mistake personal truth for larger truths. And I think that within the Native American framework in general, I know we're talking about more than 500 different 
recognized indigenous nations alone in the United States, but within the Native American framework of things, we would say that we are always in the eye of the creator. We're always being seen no matter what we do. So even though we may try to present things as reality that are not real, the reality goes beyond us and exists no matter what we say or what we do. And uh, to talk about the Nolhegan Nation is a very complicated thing because we are a community of people who for many generations were not recognized as Native American by the state of Vermont. The uh, sort of uh, fallacy in Vermont was that there were never any American Indians here. I oh. guess we just passed through on our way to vacation on the Cape, <laughs> even though some of the largest uh, graveyards ever uncovered of Native people with burials thousands of years old are right near Swanton, Vermont, which is where the tribal headquarters of the St. Francis Abenaki Band, which I used to belong to until we broke up into four different tribal groups. But that's yet another story uh, is located. So when we talk about who we are, I think often people make the mistake of thinking that Native American has to be defined by some government entity. In other hmm. words, you're not real unless you're recognized. Well, now we do have state recognition, which is something. But as uh, one of our former chiefs, Homer St. Francis, used to say, so the federal government doesn't recognize us. Well, in that case, I just don't recognize them. <laughs> but I think it's a matter of, of community, of family, of understanding who you are and people in that community also recognizing you for who you are. And uh, one of the big discussions over the last several generations has been the whole thing about blood quantum and DNA. And quite frankly, I think that's a dead end. Mm -hmm. We can do all kinds of things to try to prove people who they are, like uh, are who they are, like pedigree dogs. But in fact, we are human beings first and foremost. We are part of our family, first and foremost, our community, our tribal nation, and our larger nation of being a human being. And within that, being a living being in a world that is just vibrantly alive all around us. And if we don't recognize that life all around us, including the stones, the winds, the earth itself, then we are going to be lost souls. That's a great way to put that. And I remember years ago in the bioregional movement, somebody said to me, well, the trees are migrating through, but the stones are migrating through too. Mm -hmm. And um, I also wanted to ask you about something you mentioned about the state of Vermont and the area that you're from. Um, you know, I live in Lawrence, Kansas, and we have Haskell Indian Nations University. Mm -hmm. And of course that used to be a boarding school and we have sacred wetlands here, which have been in dispute and pretty much violated in ways they shouldn't have been over after many, many, many years of uh, trying to protect them. I wonder if you also are in a place where there's a lot of buried stories. There's a lot of history um, in the ground, so to speak, of those who were split apart and if you, if you feel like you're living in concert with those stories, too. Very definitely. In fact, uh, this could go in many different directions from that question. Uh, and I'll take it in one direction first, and that is that uh, it has been my mission for uh, over 40 years now to protect areas that I know where there are burials and to protect areas that are land that is land that should not be developed. And I fought a lot of battles in that respect. And I've been involved with... Uh, things like repatriation and reburials, and such things as preventing uh, the destruction of habitat. Uh, my property that I live on, the 90 acres is also where we have our outdoor education center, were the first conservation easements in Saratoga County. And I'm a very strong proponent of that. To take it in another direction, all across this continent, there are places that have been despoiled, not by native people. And one of the ironies, in fact, I'm writing a book right now about Native Americans and national parks, is that to create national parks, almost invariably, Native people had their land taken away from them or they were evicted. And when the Havasupai people who live within the Grand Canyon 
uh, fought for over 60 years to get some small portion of their land back, they were opposed by the Sierra Club, <laughs> which uh, thought that they would misuse any land they might be given back. 518 acres was all they had left. Oh my gosh. A landmark decision in the late 70s, they were given back um, tens of thousands of acres, over 100,000, and the use of more than 90,000 acres in concert with the National Park Service. But that's just a side note. I think it's important to recognize that what we call deep ecology, what we call conservation, was simply the way people lived. People lived that. They did not have to have a name for it. And they were aware of the fact that what we do now will affect every generation after us of living things, not just of people. Uh, one reason why we have some very strong stories about mistakes, like, for example, almost all of our trickster stories have trickster doing something really stupid. And that's because we are human beings, too. We are capable of making mistakes. But our stories remind us of the consequences of doing the wrong things, um, even to the point of destroying the world. I have Diné friends, uh, Navajo friends, um, who uh, have that long tradition that the world we live in is now the fifth world. And there were four worlds before this, and each one was destroyed, flooded, made uninhabitable by foolish actions on the part of coyote or human beings. So we came to this world where we are now, the rainbow world, as I've heard it called. Mm -hmm. If we don't listen to the lessons of stories, if we don't pay attention to what we're doing, we may indeed, as we are doing right now in this country, creating an atmosphere where you cannot survive, whether it be flood or fire. There are things that are happening right now that are like a dope slap for humanity to tell us yeah. no more. Turn around. Absolutely. And humans are surely experts of destructive folly. Um, on a side note, I live on land that we have spent 35 years trying to save and preserve. And we are in the conservation easement process now, Great. which kind of leads me to another question, which is land as what informs story. Land is where story comes from. And your own connection to having lived in just about the same place your whole life. I just can't imagine the millions of layers of memory that you must walk through at times. <laughs> and um, yeah. I also noticed that when, you know, related to this in one interview, when you discuss the complexity of how native people are pressured to prove their heritage, like no one else, you said, who am I? Earth and sky know who I am but also your most local place you live knows um, who you are. So what was, what was the influence of staying put and being so, so grounded in um, so all of your life in one place on you being a storyteller and a carrier of stories? Well, it's not that I haven't traveled. I went to Cornell University for four years. I went to Syracuse mm -hmm. University. I then went to West Africa as a volunteer teacher for three years. So I've seen much of the world. I've been in every state, but I've always come back to this place, which is my home. I'm right now in the building where I was raised as a child. I'm up above what used to be my grandparents' general store on a corner where there were people who made uh, Native American baskets and sold them to the tourists in Saratoga Springs. Uh, and uh, if I walk outside and dig my hand into the earth around the foundation, I may come up with a, a piece of melted glass from the house that was my great grandparents. It was burned down by someone who wanted to kill them. So uh, history yeah. is around me everywhere. I look out my window right now and I see the uh, high branches of the maple tree that was planted by Miss McTighe, my fourth grade teacher. Uh, the year after I finished fourth grade, she and her sister came and we planted that tree in the backyard. So uh, all these things root me in this place. And I think we need roots if we're going to branch out. In fact, as far as stories go, I always tell people, know your own roots before you try to branch out toward others. I'm not saying only 
Native people can tell Native stories. Only African people can tell African stories. But if you are going to tell those stories, you can't tell them on the surface. You have to have lived your own life, your own roots, to be able to understand the branches that other people reach toward you. Yes, and of course, trees age in stories, you know, and we have mm -hmm. also a ring for each year. So that also connects with living in a place <clears throat> and having these multi-layered memories. You said in an interview on Lee and Low Books, any autobiography is always a work in progress. And of right. course, that's true of everything we live. So what story or stories are you living now? <laughs> By the way, I think of that uh, reminds me of Harvey Carr, who was a storyteller friend of mine who lived in Blue Mountain Lake, New York. And Harvey would sit in front of the post office. And in the summertime, tourists, lowlanders, flatlanders would come up to him. They say, have you lived here all your life? And Harvey would say, well, not yet. You know, autobiography. If you can write an autobiography, then it's not going to be complete because you're still breathing. So no one yeah. can write a complete autobiography unless they do it with their last breath. But uh, getting back to your original question, I think that we as human beings have many things in common. And one of them is the understanding that place will teach us. Quite frankly, I think I'm living a lot of different stories at any given time. And right now it's a story of this season. We have uh, 50 blueberry bushes. I was out picking them this morning and uh, I'll be taking around blueberries to people I know all afternoon. I never sell them their gift from the creator. Uh, I think the story that you live is the story you're telling. I know when I tell a story, I always am in the story, not memorizing or relating it from memory, but seeing it as I tell it. And I think that stories are living things and they will tap you on the shoulder and tell you when it's time to tell them or to live them. Oh, I love that. That makes so much sense. And I also know my question has a little bit of the ridiculous to it because it's hard to name the story we're in, in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so even though this wasn't a question I sent you in advance, what do you see as the role of memory to story, like the stories you live and how memories can change and shift and revise themselves over time? Ah, uh, speak memory, as Nabokov said. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, memory is an interesting thing. I have found that keeping journals is really important because I lived in Ghana, for example, for three years, from 66 to 69. And I cannot say I remember specifically any day that I was there right now off the top of my head. But if I open up a journal and read the entry for that date, all these things come flooding back to me with uh, great precision and uh, in depth. So I think that our memories hold more than we think they do. And sometimes just having done things like written down a bit of something mm -hmm. will help you reaccess it. But being forgetful is part of who we are as human beings. Um, I was told by Tom Porter, a Mohawk elder, that the creator gave us this teaching that one thing we must always do is be thankful. Remember to behave in a thankful way. And then, then this one day, Tom was talking to these smiled and said, but you know, the creator gave another gift to us and that was the gift of being forgetful. <laughs> so we're always forgetting things, so we need to be reminded, which is one reason why we have storytellers, why we have ceremonies, why we have clan mothers. We have all of these people to help remind us of the things that we're always forgetting because it is a nature of human beings to be forgetful. I also think about how your work creates not just records and mirrors into the past and into moments that you have captured in stories, but it also creates to mix metaphors um, new, new pathways, new rivers, new ways to consider for the future, especially since you've created so many books, stories, songs, and more for kids. What's the story behind the story there? Well, I think that one thing that's important to do as a writer is to write. Because mm -hmm. if you don't write, again, you forget. In fact, uh, an old friend of mine, Allen Ginsberg, 
uh, said to me once, we were talking about, I forgot what it was, but he said, you know, nothing escapes faster than a poem in the night, Joseph. And it, it's true. There's so many cases, if you don't write it down, it's not going to be there, even though you think you'll remember it an hour or two later. So nowadays, what I do, in fact, I just wrote an entire novel this way. I just turn on my iPhone and dictate into it. And uh, that way I have it remembered and I can go back to it and pick up the strand because I, you know, put that little sort of a bookmark in there for the idea that I had. I just wrote a novel called Reds Dogs and I wrote it by walking every morning with my dog and dictating a chapter. Uh, it just came out from Dial Books, as a matter of fact. Congratulations. Yeah, it's about a little girl or a young woman who has uh, been stranded on the reservation of her grandparents uh, during the pandemic and can't leave because of that. And then a dog comes and adopts them. So that book just came out uh, about a month ago. Oh, that's lovely. And I also want to ask you a follow-up question on that. Why so many books and other offerings for kids? And I know you have over 70 books, so and there's a lot out there. I have over 170 books published. Oh my gosh. Okay. 170. That's the one. It was over 70 though. So that's 170. Yeah, this is true. You're absolutely. I just missed a hundred. I counted them somewhere, but you know. It's we'll nothing go. like my dear friend, Jane Yolen. Jane is heading toward 400 right now. <laughs> but uh, I guess you're a slacker. You have to face it, right? I haven't done as much as I, I could do. I know I have to. I began as a poet. And much of what I wrote and published in the uh, 60s and 70s was poetry. In fact, I've got a National Endowment for the Arts Poetry Fellowship and had a uh, fellowship at Syracuse University in creative writing uh, because of my poetry. But uh, when I had kids of my own, I began telling them traditional stories. I felt they needed them. I did not grow up with them uh, in the same way that I wanted them to. and. Uh, so I was asked by a friend of mine, John Gill, who edited a magazine called New American and Canadian Poetry and had just started something called The Crossing Press. Uh, since he knew me and he knew my, my kids and my family, he asked, are there traditional native stories you tell your kids? Could you write them down so we could publish some of them? And that was my first experience in the mid-70s with getting a book published for young people of stories that I told my two sons, Jim and Jesse, who grew up and are now professional storytellers and writers themselves. <laughs> and uh, in fact, the way I wrote that first book, which was called Turkey Brother and Other Iroquois Stories, I would uh, sit down with my son, Jesse, who uh, in 1975 was less than 10 years old. And I would ask him to uh, re recite back to me the story I had told him and then I would go and write it down. So I took the story as he received it and then wrote it down and made sure it was understandable to a, a younger audience in that way. Oh, I love that. That's a wonderful approach. And in addition to all the writing, there's music. Is that central to your core, to who you are? It pretty much always has been. Uh, music is a part of, I guess, my identity. I remember when I was in Ghana, between 66 and 69, our high school level students were given by the US Information Service uh, a, an electric guitar, a bass guitar, and a drum set so they could start a band. So I helped them with the band and ended up being not just the advisor to the band, but they wanted me to be the lead vocalist or anything that was an American song, plus to play the flute during the Ghanaian music. So uh, I was a, a member of a group we called the Afro Echoes. And oh my gosh. <laughs> toured Ghana performing. <laughs> and uh, so way back then. And then when I came back to the United States, um, I began, uh, you know, working more writing songs with guitar. And it was a decision I made in the 1970s not to pursue a career as a musician because it meant being on the road and being away from family and home so much that uh, it was not something I felt I should pursue. But I still write songs, I still perform. Uh, I've performed with my two sons and my sister, Marge. We used to have a group called the Dawn Land Singers. We did a couple of CDs. And uh, every now and then I perform at some place or another. For example, Cafe Lena here in Saratoga Springs. I just did a, a concert there 
with my stepson, Mikhail, and a dear friend of mine named John Kirk. We call ourselves the Middle Grove Trio, because we all live on Middle Grove Road. <laughs> and, uh, we do songs that we've written ourselves, uh, you know, contemporary folk or whatever you want to call it. Oh, that's lovely to hear. So, of course, I have to ask about poetry. And in your poem, Prince, you write, seeing photos of ancestors a century past is like looking at your own fingerprints, circles and lines you can't recognize until someone else with a stranger's eye looks close and says, thank you. This poem makes me think of how powerful it can be to have a good witness who can help you see and recognize yourself. I wonder if you could talk more about that. That's very true. Uh, I don't just write for myself. I write for, in part, an imaginary audience, but in part, an audience of friends and uh, peers, people whose work I have loved and respected for years. I know that uh, my late wife, Carol, was always the first reader of everything I wrote and we were together for more than 45 years. She passed away in 2011. And uh, I was fortunate enough five years ago to, uh, to marry again. And my wife, Nicola, whose stepson is like uh, the third brother in our family for my two sons. Uh, and Nicola herself is a poet and a writer. And she reads the things I write now and, and offers me her considered opinion. She's also the uh, Dean of Arts and Humanities at Empire State College. Um, mm -hmm. Trilingual, she was raised in Tahiti. Her family is Tahitian on one side, and she's a fluent French speaker and translates French poetry. So I have a very good built-in audience and critic right in, under my own roof with uh, my wife, my wife, my late wife, Carol, and now my wife, Nicola. And I honor and respect so much of what they have given to me. I completely hear you. My first audience is my husband, Ken, and he's a Kansan, so he's very understated. And I'll read him something I think is one of the strongest things I've written, and he'll be like, hmm, yeah, that's kind of good. You know, so. <laughs> high praise from Kansas. Yeah, high praise from a Kansan. So, and that leads me to this question. How has storytelling or listening to stories or unearthing stories been part of your own resilience, healing, grappling with grief, and facing the hard things life throws at us? I think that story is one of the best vehicles toward recovery, uh, towards regaining balance, and towards uh, <clears throat> understanding who you are and where you are. I think without story, without examining yourself, uh, you often are at a loss to know what is going on? I have done writing workshops and storytelling workshops for decades. And some of the most moving ones I've done have been in prisons. And one thing I often say to men and women in prison is that if you don't tell your story, someone else will tell it for you. In fact, I'm sure at this point, that's what's been happening. And mm -hmm. almost invariably, they say that's true. And when they begin to look at themselves and their own story, they see themselves and their possibilities in a very different light. Absolutely. And just by having a good witness who can be there and hear our stories, as I tell people in my writing workshops, I especially work with people living of serious illness, mm -hmm. you, can, you can hear the weight of your own words. You can feel the weight. You can feel your own stories and how they've unfurled in you and what possibilities might be for revising some of those stories. How does the word legacy land in you or what do you see as mattering most in this time in your life? Well, I don't think about any legacy in terms of myself. I think that would be foolish and maybe a, a little mm -hmm. bit uh, selfish. I just think in terms of trying to do the best I can and if anything remains after I've gone, uh, well, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, a very dear friend of mine named Bruce Hiscock, who was a children's writer, uh, just passed away a week ago, and he wrote this moving letter. He said, um, I really don't know much about religion or all of that, but I do know one thing, that is I came from somewhere, and I've been here, and I'm going somewhere else. And I think there's not much more we can say than what Bruce said in that little letter he wrote. Except that today is the day of picking and giving away the blueberries, right? Well, there's that, sure thing. <laughs> yeah. 
if only you weren't 1400 miles away i'd love to have some of your blueberries yeah, i've got a couple of quarts of them right here with me right now <laughs> <laughs> i bet you do well thank you so much joe i really appreciate your time your work in the world your voice in this world i remember seeing you as part of a crowd in um gosh was it 19 96 at goddard college when your son jesse was graduating and that he played flute that was my very first semester in residency teaching there just having the sense that you were a man who was totally where he was who had totally landed in the story of the moment oh, and i appreciate thinking of stories of the moment my son jesse is now the director of the school of abenaki for middlebury college yeah, which is a very big thing for our Abenaki nation and for Middlebury and for Jesse himself. And uh, he and my other son, Jim, right now are, are running outdoor education camps for kids uh, all this week and next over at our outdoor education center. So I guess maybe I should back up and say, if I do have a legacy, it's those guys. And it's a wonderful legacy. And it makes me think of something Lewis Hyde wrote about in relation to his book, The Gift. The Gift Must Go On. And through your sons um, telling their own stories and helping others to tell and live their own stories, that gift is going on. You've got to take yourself home to the sound of your own heartbeat, singing, hey, singing. Ford on her website speaks of all that has changed in the last few years with the pandemic. She writes, at the same time, we're all part of a revolution. Still, and in many ways, all too slowly unfolding to change the status quo so that black and brown lives will truly matter and will make our way to what she calls a different life, hopefully, eventually, a better life. She goes on to say, I mourn for what we have all lost, and I support young, proud voices and older voices that have been raised for decades, calling for no more than what every human being deserves, the power to live a good, safe life. I pray for their safety. I am proud of their strength and courage. Lynn embodies this different and better life bringing together worlds and a specific place on this earth in her being and storytelling. She's a fourth generation Afro-Latchian storyteller. And as we talk about, that's an African-American Appalachian storyteller. And Lynn also has Cherokee and Choctaw heritage. She's a teaching artist and workshop facilitator with the Ohio Alliance for Arts Education and a Thurber House mentor, a recording artist with award-winning CD and a wonderful writer, including of her award-winning book, Afro-Latchian Tales. She's also a laughter yoga teacher and a breath mechanic. I first met Lynn at the Power of Words conference so many years back, I can't remember when, only that we often ended up outside somewhere, a picnic table on the prairie, a garden in the desert, a porch overlooking the ocean, telling stories of our lives. Her sense of humor, affection, joy, ethics, and wisdom shines through her words. I asked her to start today with a story that fits the focus of this podcast. Yes, I, I have a story for you. It's one that I heard from my dad who was one of my favorite storytellers, um, Edward Cooper. Uh, and it is rooted in story that was blended from uh, African, West African folktale, perhaps into my dad's uh, Cherokee and Choctaw heritage in the Appalachian Hills. It's about an eagle who was big and strong. He was fierce, he was frightening. And he was a fine looking bird. And he knew all of that. And so he declared himself the king of the sky. And none of the other birds dared to argue with him. 
none of them except for Little Sparrow. Now she said, Eagle, maybe other birds would like to be king. Why, maybe I would like to be the queen of the sky. Yes, yes, I think I could be queen of the sky. Well, Eagle laughed at what Sparrow said, but he noticed that the other birds were whispering and twittering. They were beginning to question his authority. And Eagle came up with an idea. He thought it was brilliant, a way to shame that little bird and impress all the other birds, perhaps frighten them too. He spread his great wings and turned his head from side to side to show off his strength and power. And he said, little bird to that sparrow, I challenge you to a race. The first one of us to reach the highest point on the highest mountain near here will prove that he, yes, he, has the strength and power to rule. The one whose feet touch the ground there first wins the race. We will race at sunrise. Well, the next morning, the birds had gathered to watch the race. There in the valley, Eagle and Sparrow were standing side by side in the clearing, and the other birds were settling in the branches of the trees and bushes, waiting for the race to begin. Just the way the birds do, to this very day. They were waiting for the first rays of the sun and it touched the tops of the trees. That ray of sunlight was the beginning of the race for Eagle screeched, go! And Eagle spread his great wings again and rose higher and higher into the air. The wind lifted him and his own strength and speed pushed him forward. Now every now and then he'd look to his left and to his right He'd look above himself and beneath himself, and he didn't see Sparrow. He knew Sparrow was definitely not in front of him, and that made him laugh, because of course he thought, Sparrow's behind me somewhere, and she's going to lose this race. The mountain seemed to be coming closer and closer to Eagle, and he was grateful for that, because he was growing tired, although he wouldn't admit it. Finally, he lifted his wings to land on the top of the mountain. And from underneath one wing dropped little Sparrow. Her tiny feet touched the top of the mountain first, which meant that Sparrow had won the race. She was the queen of the sky. Now the other birds heard Eagle screech in rage. Sparrow, you could not have beaten me here. You could not have flown here before me. And Sparrow grinned and cheerfully said, well, I didn't. I hitched a ride with you. You didn't say we had to fly to this spot. You said the one who reached it, the one whose feet touched the ground first would win. I won. You may have strong and powerful wings, Eagle, but I have the strength and power too. It's called a brain. And I know how to use it. Sparrow, now the queen of the sky, quickly flew away from there. She could see how angry Eagle was, and she wanted to be safe much more than she wanted to be queen of anything. But since then, eagles will chase little birds, will catch them and kill them and eat little birds. So little birds tend to gather together for safety, to watch out for one another. And they often hide themselves in the branches of the bushes and the trees. But when you hear the little birds chirping in those branches, they are carrying on deep discussions. They are asking thoughtful questions. They are gathering strength and power, asking Queen Sparrow for advice. And that is the end of that story. What a wonderful way to begin this. And I guess we're just a bunch of wonderful little sparrows in the bushes catching up and finding our way forward. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, I think we're trying our best to think what's more important, the power of politics or the power of working together. Exactly, and that leads me to this question. How do you see stories helping us to connect with what matters most 
what's most illuminating or transformative or healing? Um, there's a quote by Justin Simeon that I keep posted actually up over my laptop, and that's why it's easily available for me. It says that stories teach us empathy. They reveal to us ourselves in the skins of others. Stories are part of our being. As long as people were able to speak, they shared stories. But before they could speak the stories, they might sing stories. And before they sang stories, they drew stories on the walls of caves or in the dirt with sticks or whatever tool they might use. Stories are a part of how we remember things, of how we learn things. We're hardwired for stories, but they also provide connection between me and you building us they provide communication because basic storytelling is just narrative communication. They help us to understand one another. And when we understand one another, we can act more empathetically and that action can make a difference in the world. Absolutely, thank you so much. Lynn, were you born a storyteller or was it a calling that emerged later on? And how did it grab hold of you and lead you forward? Well, Karen, my mother says I started telling stories at the age of three. <laughs> and at that age, the stories were often called lies. <laughs> because I was smart enough to know that I'd done something that might be a problem. And I would try to get myself out of trouble, but I didn't have that level of knowledge and wisdom that would let me know the story had to make sense. Um, so my mother said, I made a lot of people laugh making up those stories, but I came from a storytelling family. Um, as I said, my father was one of my favorite storytellers. I guess he was my favorite storyteller, but my grandfather, my pop pops was a storyteller too. And he told tall tales uh, a lot. And grandma Josephine said he was just a liar. And, um, my great-grandparents shared stories. My great-aunties shared stories. Some of the cousins who would babysit for us um, would also tell stories. And my mother read to us every night um, until we were in older elementary school grades. So I was steeped in story. And as far as I know, I'm the fourth-generation storyteller in the family. So I guess I was born uh, a storyteller. But it didn't become a career until my children were in elementary school and I was teaching preschool and tutoring in language arts at their school. And they told their teachers that I was a good storyteller. So I got invited in and I started sharing programs first in classrooms and then doing little workshops in the classrooms. And then the principal invited me to do some assemblies and the art teacher said I should look into the artists in schools program. And that's when my career began um, when I was accepted into the artists um, program here uh, in Ohio, doors opened up for me because that acceptance gave some credibility to what I'd been doing. And uh, it just took off from there. I've been doing this for about 30 years now. Oh, it's so wonderful to hear. And I have a follow-up question uh, to that. You're the fourth generation storyteller in your family, but fourth generation that you know of. It may go much further back. Absolutely. And, yeah. I know you're also of African, Choctaw, Cherokee, and perhaps other heritages also. And we often talk about generational trauma and what we carry from the generations before us. Do you think storytelling in your family and all these generations has been a way to transform what's hard, what's deafening, what's silencing into something else? Absolutely. There was a part of my uh, family on my father's side of the family um, who didn't like for him to share certain folk tales. Now these folk tales are the type that some people know as Br'er Rabbit types of tales. Yes. Um, the Uncle Ramus tales, 
and Uncle Ramus, of course, never existed, Joel Chandler Harris collected the stories of people who were enslaved or had been enslaved and put them into books. Um, my father knew them by word of mouth from folks in his family, but some people in the family would tell him, I remember hearing it as a little girl, don't tell that child those slave tales. They were embarrassed by the stories because uh, Joel Chandler Harris had placed them into a dialect and of course he couldn't speak it and he tried to write it. And there was a, a stigma to that. But my father told them anyway, and I'm so grateful that he did because that gave me information which I could research so that I discovered when I was a teenager that many of the stories, which weren't in any other books at the time, were actually rooted in African folktale, primarily West African folktale. And had my father not told the stories, I wouldn't have that foundation, both for what I shared with my children and for my storytelling career. The stories, there were many stories that were told of, of pain, of, of loss and sadness in the family. And they were told quietly um, with respect, but also perhaps because no one else should hear them. Um, but they gave me a bit of strength hearing those stories and knowing that someone had come perhaps all the way from Alabama up into the northern regions to find work and had succeeded in finding work and raising families and making homes there. There was growth for me and strength for me in all of that. Um, there were a lot of stories that I probably haven't told yet, but my mind will remember them and Karen, I try to jog a few notes down so that I can research them before the last of the elders, my mother is gone. And I think every child needs that foundation, no matter what happened in the family. That knowledge uh, gives strength, and that strength helps a child to find the resilience and the ability to grow beyond negative situations. So it also helped me um, because I'm a stutterer, and I don't tend to stutter when I'm sharing stories or singing songs or reciting poetry. I had a speech impediment, but by the time I started school, it was pretty much gone because everyone encouraged me to speak and tell the stories. Had they discouraged me or been teasing all the time, I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing now. And make no mistake, outside the family, I was teased a great deal about the way I spoke, but that didn't stop me from running my mouth, obviously. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad that you've been running that mouth because it's been, <laughs> it's been so generous in what it's brought all of us and the stories you tell. You put yourself out there and surely you put yourself in, in your own soul as an Afrolatian story. Afrolatian. Oh, I was going to ask you how you say it. Afrolatian storyteller. Yes. A storyteller of, quote, American... African-American heritage and history from Appalachia or Appalachia. That's it. <laughs> tomato, I say tomato. And on your <laughs> website, you have gratitude to Frank X. Walker for creating this wonderful word. What's the story about how you discovered and claimed this word and what doors does it help you open for yourself and others? Um. He, Frank is uh, also a professor in Kentucky, and he was the very first uh, African-American poet laureate for the state of Kentucky, uh, 2013, I think it was, to 2015. But he had written a book of poetry called Afrolatcha, and that came out, I think, in 2000. And I had been sharing stories since, oh, let's say, 1991, part-time 1992 full-time and you need to promote your work we had to write our own um, little pages for the roster of teaching artists and 
I could tell about how I told stories and I spoke of being African-American and I um, also spoke of having jack tails from the European-American part of the family in Appalachia and just a few, just a few of my father's stories from the Native American families in Appalachia. But there wasn't a specific designation for who I was that covered all of it. So when somebody asked me to explain what I did, I'm just, you know, just blathering at some points because I wasn't sure how to explain it. And then I found um, Frank X. Walker's wonderful word, which he had created because people didn't seem to realize that the Appalachian region was a place of diversity, that there were other cultures besides European Americans there. But that word, it explained who I was, a black Appalachian, which is the primary source of all my storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of latched onto the word. And I, when I put together a book of folk tales and some background information on the history of those stories and my family's heritage of stories. I called it Afrolatchian Tales to honor them. Related to this, you've lived in Ohio and I believe Pennsylvania and in this area um, from what I'm gathering your whole life. So how does place, sense of place, connection to place, layers of memory embedded in place speak to who you are and what you do? Um, I was born in Mercer County, Pennsylvania. That's Appalachian, Pennsylvania. And that's an area of beautiful hills and valleys. Architecture of the earth there is just gorgeous. It's as if it was built to be a garden for everyone. And that impacts the way I look at the rest of the world. When I see green, my heart is filled. When I start to smell the spring blooms, I, I, I'm excited. I'm anxious for that. Here in Ohio, where I live, it's kind of flat. But if you go to the east, you start to hit that Appalachian region of Ohio. Same wonderful hills, same beautiful greenery, same connections to the earth. And I think that impacts my writing because I'm always curious about which bird is singing that song, even if I don't remember um, what flower is that. And I'll start doing research that, that connects it into the story. So I, I find a, as Sparrow did, a strength and a power. I find a strength and power in relating to those connections and it feeds into the way I want to share the stories, make them something that grows in other people's hearts. Yes, and lands in our lives, too, and helps us know where we are. I also love how on your bio place page, you describe yourself as a storyteller, an author, a teacher, and mentor, and so much else, including a happy partner in life, mama, grandmama, great-grandmama, and good cook. <laughs> I have also heard you tell powerful and magical stories that really synthesize who you are and some of what you have lived through and bringing all this together in such synthesis is an inspiration how did you find such integration some such ways to language all of you um in part it's just being who i am i've always felt comfortable in this skin um, other people may have problems with it, but I don't. And that, again, comes from the roots of family and the foundation that they gave me, both as models of how to live a happy life um, in relationship with others, with the earth, and with their own spirituality, and feeling connections within myself to those heart memories of those elders um, I feel that way about our children too. The connections I make with them helps me to know more about myself. And there's a vocabulary that comes with recognizing family that I wouldn't have to, if I didn't have those connections. For, for example, if I say poke, um, someone might be thinking of being jabbed with the finger and I'm talking about 
poke a plant that grows in our backyard now. Um, but when I'm speaking with other people of the regions, they know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's the language of the people and the memories of the places and the heart that still connects me with the region where I was born. And I spent a lot of time in East Liverpool, Ohio. All of that um, integrates into who I am and how I share myself with others. I'm comfortable being who I am. And when you're comfortable and you love who you are, it's much easier to share stories with others and uh, also to give those hugs that we're all hoping for. Yes, absolutely. And you know, you also mentioned um, your connection to children. And I was also going to ask you, because I know you do a lot of storytelling with children. Do you notice differences in how stories land in people based on what generation they're in? Um, when I can be with them live, and that's starting to happen now, of course, Karen, I see it in their eyes. They're all connecting, um, see the the smiles on their faces or the looks of astonishment and look at their body language. And I can tell that whether they're three years old or 95, they're connecting to the story. Adults seem to connect um, with memories. After a program, they'll come up and they'll say, you made me remember such and such and so, or I have a story almost like that. And it breaks down the barriers of race, of culture, of um, education, of finances, because we've touched on something that we're carrying both in our heads and hearts. For the children, some of whom have not heard a storyteller until I come to that library or that classroom, um, for them, it's a new experience. It's an adventure and they get excited because I share in a way that makes them the most important character in the story. Um, we're physically active and they become involved in the story. So they carry it with them and they make a connection to it without realizing in their own personal lives. And they want to share the story with others. This is all, you know, great stuff. You know, storyteller and humorist Kim Whitecamp writes of your book, Appalachian Tales, Quote, Lynn Ford has given us so much more than a book of tales. She has opened the door of her home, invited us in, and offered us a meal that is rich with morsels of culture, humor, heart, and history. The minute I read the line, one does not give power to those who try to subvert knowledge simply because it does not fit into their own worldview. Um, this resonates very closely with my own heart myths or guiding dominant narratives that tell us who we are, who can be at the table, and how you in your work have found ways to kind of turn some of those old power dynamics that silence so many on their heads and pull up more chairs to the table. So could you talk more about the relationship of power to storytelling, including whose stories we hear? who gets to tell their stories and how you're embodying such challenges and changes in your life and stories. Well, you're right. That's a massive question, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I promised you I'd, I'd ask it. So here we are, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. And um, it, in my mind, it all goes back to a proverb from West Africa. I'm sorry. I'm not sure which culture um, is its original um uh, group or language group, but the the uh, saying is the hunter will always be the hero until the lion tells his story. And there's so much in that um, that uh, statement, that proverb, uh, which may come from Ghana, but as I said. I'm not, I'm not sure there are several groups that claim it that I, that I know people from those cultures and they all claim the same saying. The hunter will be the hero until the lion tells the story. The hunter who may have a certain power, 
because of tools available to him and a knowledge of how to use them. We'll tell the story in one way. The lion, who also is very powerful, would tell the story in another way. For example, the hunter might say, um, I saved my family by killing that lion. And the lion might say, I was protecting my family when a stranger attacked. The, the same incident seen through different eyes, felt with different hearts and all that makes it a difference. So it matters who's telling the story and history is not the, it, there are truths in history, but it's not necessarily all the realities. It's that same situation of who's telling the story. And usually the ones who are in power tell their version of the story. And that's the one that goes into records like history books. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it depends on the story that you hear. It depends on the story with which you were raised how you look at the rest of the world. It's important that we recognize that everybody's story is important, whether we like it or not. Everyone's story is important in order to overcome some realities in this world. Um, for example, how long are we going to be able to breathe this air? Yeah. You know, how long are we going to be able to, to drink the water? How long is there going to be water? And according to the mythologies of some, oh, there's plenty for everybody. But there are those who know, who recognize all the signs. We're draining our own resources. And that story needs to get told. And so I'm trying to embody, I guess, a lot of things as big as this question that you're asking me. Some intentionally and some just because of who I am. And I think people can feel that I'm sincere, that I'm transparent and that I'm trying to share the truths um, that are beyond um, what someone else's story might be. And truths go beyond reality. Those are the things that touch the heart and make a difference. Absolutely. And what you say also speaks to the danger of a single story. Yes. And, um, and there's quite a bit out there on that and the danger of just having one narrative and then, of course, we can get into all kinds of other areas about, but what's the true story and what's oh. the true story for you? Yes. Couldn't we? Oh, my goodness. Oh, that could be another whole podcast. My goodness. Exactly. Or a whole podcast series. So one reason I got to know you is that you also identify as a transformative language artist. And we've been together hanging out on porches in Maine and overhangs and in Kansas City and other places um, at the Power of Words conference. And we both believe in the power of the spoken, written, or sung word for changing and lifting up ourselves and our communities. What drew you to transformative language arts? Um, Karen, I was invited to come by a storyteller who was already a member of Transformative Language Arts Network. And she asked would I put in a proposal uh, on storytelling because she said uh, the group just needed more storytellers. They had a lot that was connected to music and song, but they didn't necessarily have as many storytellers, active storytellers uh, involved. And by active, I mean on the road, uh, mm -hmm. telling for, you know, you can be an active storyteller on your front porch, but what was needed was someone who had experience out in the world sharing stories so that they would be effective for a larger group. So um, when I got there, I wasn't sure what to expect. And my workshop had been accepted. And I found um, a group that shared the same concept of um, impacting the world through language arts, making a difference, a positive difference and um, connected with one another, regardless of backgrounds and heritage. 
and I thought, oh my goodness, I have found my people. You know, it just, it felt so good. And we, we dance together. I love what you say about play and what you're pointing to with kind of playing at the edges of the story we thought we were living. Which, yes. as we know, the story we think we're living is often not the story we're living that there's a much bigger, more playful, more mutable and mysterious story going on. Yes. So in light of that, you know, what do you see as your gift, your legacy in this very crazy old world? I think that for some young people, I'm modeling the way to be as an elder and reducing the concept of ageism to something that hopefully will be non-existent, at least in the, the groups of teenagers through um, pre-K students with whom I work. Uh, so hopefully I'm getting rid of that ism. I'm also playing with their concepts of what someone needs to be and who someone needs to be and how there are other options and we can be flexible with our lives. But I think Karen, most of all, um, my legacy is that somewhere, someone is telling a story to someone somewhere. And I'm the one that perhaps planted the seed for them to grow their own stories. And what a beautiful and generative legacy. Thank you so much, Lynn, and I have loved talking to you and listening to you and continuing to learn from you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for listening to Tell Me Your Truest Story. Please subscribe to my podcast at karenmiriamgoldberg.podbean.com or visit my website for the link to find out more about workshops, writings, happenings, and my latest blog post at karenmiriamgoldberg.com. That's C-A-R-Y-N-M-I-R-R-I-A-M-G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G. You can also find Tell Me Your Truest Story on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Special thanks to Kelly Hunt for the use of her music from our co-written song, The Road is Just a River. And please catch up with more of Kelly's music at kellyhunt.com. That's Kelly with two E's, K-E-L-L-E-Y. Thank you to Diana Burrup for our logo. May you find greater truth and joy, peace and wonder in your own truest stories.